Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Welcome to a Believe Podcast. I'm your host, John Hoistenstam. This is the Guitar Life. This is part two with my special guest. Peter Margolis. What a ride. Peter Margolis doesn't quit. He continues to impress me with how he can persevere in all these different areas of endeavor. Wow. going to hear about his Marshall amp collection. I hope you enjoy our conversation. If you enjoy our show, please subscribe. Thanks. Well, what happened was, I so I had these 10 cabinets and ended up being 10 heads by the time you know, I was done playing in bands and um, I had them in my garage uh, in my first house in West Hollywood, where I had a little studio and I w- where I was doing, you know, some production work and uh, I never used them. They sat up, they were, they took up an entire wall and I just thought they were cool to look at. And they sort of reminded me of my past and um, I never got rid of them. And then uh I started making some money and I got married and we moved to Studio City and in the Studio City house, there was a guest house, which I turned into a studio and it was considerably larger than my other garage. And because I was making a little bit of money, um, I decided I didn't know anything about the stock market or real estate per se. It wasn't my thing. And um, I wanted to invest in something that I knew about and I remember in school taking an economics class and learning about the laws of supply and demand. And so I started studying these marshals and realized that the earlier ones were all basically made to order and handmade. And they were, you know, made in a little shop in England and and Jim Marshall would, you know, somebody would walk in and say, Hey, I want an amp like Pete Townsend, or I want an amp like Clapton or Hendrix or Jeff Beck or, you know, and they would say, okay, well, we'll, yeah, we'll make we'll make we'll make them for you. And they didn't really start mass producing them initially. And so I thought, well, if they were just handmade originally and made to order, then there must not be a lot of them. So if there aren't a lot of them, if you can find one, eventually they'll be worth something. And so it was the only thing I knew about, and that and old guitars. And so I just started buying them. And uh, I got a storage unit um, and I just started, you know, they were 400, 600, $800 and they jumped up to a thousand dollars. And I thought, okay, if these are going that direction, I better start stockpiling these. Mm-hmm. And so I did. And along the way, um, started learning about them. And, you know, um, I, I noticed that the serial number tags changed and the size of the logo changed. And now all of a sudden they were getting plastic corners and they were getting 
piping and they were getting the feet were changing and all these different things. I, I started documenting right everything. And, you know, then I learned about when all these changes took place and what years. And then, you know, I learned about them electronically and what things were changing inside the amps and when the transformers changed and when the filter caps changed and when all this stuff. And I started writing everything down and buying more and more and more things. And then, be, you know, being able to say, oh, this is a 67 because of this. And this is a 69 because this change wasn't, you know, in until 69. Right, wasn't in right. But you got so you got so you could depict uh, the history through the technology and the, uh, you know, the materials that went into making these things. Right. It's to the point where you could publish a book. Now, I know that we were trying to. Uh, you were trying to, excuse me, uh, get a publishing deal with Hal Leonard. Did that ever come about? No, because what what happened was um, I, I they I, I was asked to put to put a chapter together, and 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 I did. Um, and the guy basically said, "Okay, then you know, uh, how long will it take you to do the book?" And I said, "I don't know, you know, because that I have so much." that has to be photographed. And then we started calling and interviewing photographers because I realized that I don't, you know, as much as I know about, you know, moving photography, I don't know about still photography. So I bought a camera, I started taking pictures. It didn't look right to me. It didn't look worthy of a book. And so interviewing photographers and writing everything up and then um, the pandemic hit. Oh, geez. And it's like, oh, shit. Now what do I do? I can't. I'm not qualified to take pictures of all this stuff. So now I've written everything, but I can't illustrate it. So it's on hold. It's it's uh, it's, it's in the on can. hold. Yeah. Oh, that's going to be beauty. <laughs> and um, the other problem is that um, it's not the stuff is not necessarily where I live. Mm -hmm. So, you know, uh, I live in a sort of a high fire area so you got and everything we, in storage somewhere yeah when we first moved into this place you know it's it's incredible um but we're up against the hillside and the um i think the Woolsey fires happened and they were 500 feet from our house and i thought okay i am not keeping you know a multi-million dollar collection of amplifiers at my home anymore um they've got to be in it so a, you know have you ever thought of like a walk through museum like could you could you legally do a Marshall walk through museum somewhere like in Hollywood or something sure, like that? But but you know yeah you have to buy a building or rent a building and you know I don't know that there's I, I'd like to think that there's an there's a large enough audience to make something like this interesting but I think there's just a bunch of weirdos like me out there that you know are fascinated by these things and there's not you know a big enough audience that it would be you know worth it for you know, to rent a space like this. I mean, I might do something when I retire and, you know, we move out into the country somewhere and I have a big outbuilding. I might, you know, do something like that. I, I don't know. Um, I'd like to get the book done first because I think that, um, you know, God forbid, I, 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 I've learned so much about these things by default. I don't want the knowledge to die with me, you know? So mm -hmm. I want to get, something written right um, that well it sounds like you, it sounds like you've done most of it it's just the details now yeah, yeah. it's it's the photographs and it's the organization but yeah, you know I, I i have databases of you know of 
everything that I have and serial numbers, part numbers and tubes and all that stuff. And it, and it, and that took years just to assemble that. So when I play at the forum, can I borrow a couple of amps from you? Absolutely. <laughs> you can have your you can have your pick of year, color, model, oh my God. watt, hundred watt. Pick your transformer. It's um, almost it almost makes you want to make sure that you play there so you can use the stuff rather the other way around. I'm playing yeah, there, so know, can I use the, the stuff instead? I got the stuff, so I'm going to play there. <laughs> you, you know, it's funny. Um, I don't know, funny, but when I started working, you know, in television on all these big award shows, um, they were coming in, you know, the bands were coming in generally, typically they would rent gear from uh, center staging or some other backline company. Yeah. And back in the eighties and early nineties, you would see these bands coming in with, you know, marshals and, and, and that now it's all been replaced, you know, cause they, they, now it's, everything's fractal or it's mm -hmm. straight into the, you know, the board. And now you see no gear on stage. Um, crazy. And, you know, no because, fun. yeah, I, I, for, I, for me, I, I, I don't know that I could do that. Um, I, I need to hear a certain, hear it a certain way. Yeah. It's part of I'm, the art. I'm, I'm used to the way these things sound, but I, I understand it. It's, it's economics, you know, you don't want to, drag all this extra weight around and need, you know, guys to set it up. And then, you know, it never sounds the same night after night because they require, you know, a certain type of power. And if the buildings are different, you know, it's all, I get it. It's just a different, <laughs> it's a different time. Uh, uh, to quickly get over into guitars, right. Yes. Uh, but uh, got any uh, interest in Fender amps or, or not? I, I have, about a dozen fender amps oh then you do um, you do have some yeah, yeah i've got um uh like an old harvard and an old tweed um deluxe and a couple other tweeds and then um a few black faces and right. I, I i have a couple from from you know i have a, a from silver years face ago deluxes, black face deluxes vibra verbs some tweeds, so about a dozen. You, you, and, and you got into the habit of holding on to equipment from years ago, right? When it was when it was uh, affordable, or I mean, like those things now are yeah, like, uh, expensive. Yeah, and mo most of this stuff, by the way, was purchased a, a long time ago. Yeah. I don't know. I don't think I could recreate my collection today. Um, I certainly couldn't afford it. Um, and that's what I mean. That's not the point yeah, I'm trying and, to and make. Finding here. a lot of it, you know, I, I look on eBay and Reverb and do these different G base and different sites, and I don't ever see even like the the, the Marshalls, the colors. You know, I have yeah. all the oranges and reds and purples and whites and yellows and all that. I, you never see them, and and the amps and the condition that I have them in, you never see. They're in collections. Yeah, you you educated yourself way back when, and you you were smart about it. It's it's a fantastic uh, story, actually. How how that happened? Um, well, it it it, it came from sort of not knowing anything about anything other than guitars and amps and only knowing what I would read in books or would or go to stores and ask right. questions. And, 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 and it's an, always an insatiable curiosity about, you know, learning electronics and, you know, why this did that. And then I would sit over guys working on, you know, my stuff and say, what, why are you doing that? What does that thing do? And then, you know, I'm sure I made all the various texts that fix my things crazy, but, um, you know, I just wanted to know everything about this 
weird little hobby that I had. And so I, I just kept buying it because um, I didn't know not to. Yeah, and you were you were I, doing it before it became the the uh, popular thing to do. You know, eventually, and, and, eventually it was the lawyers and the bankers and whoever right. had money came in with the Japanese interest, right? And right. suddenly, all that equipment is like valuable uh, collectors' uh, items. You know? Yeah, I mean, I remember buying a '63 Strat at Norm's. I want to say, and it was dead mint. And I want to say I maybe paid 4,000 for it, maybe. And that was a ton of dough at the time. And it was like, oh my God, this is a lot of money for a guitar. And then I found something later that I wanted more. And I found that I didn't really like the 63. It just wasn't my thing. I really wanted a 68, 69, 70 white maple cap strat like the one hendrix played yeah and the 63 I, I don't know so i i couldn't afford both so i traded the 63 and ended up getting four times what i paid for it on a trade <laughs> for this you know for this late um yeah. 60s you know strat. Uh, no, i know it was it skyrocketed yeah yeah and you know i this this the strat ended up actually being a more interesting guitar because in that era they were only making um, sunburst guitars yeah. and they were only making rosewood necks so to find a late 60s early 70s four bolt strat might white with a maple cap and you know is impossible they were all they were basically made you know to order so when i found that i thought okay i i gotta get yeah, you're making me sick to my stomach because i've had all these guitars that they're only a few hundred dollars you know right you know so well so i bought that i bought that <laughs> gold top 52 from you for 400 bucks <laughs> 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 you know, and and I, I remember I had to sell it uh, when I got my divorce. And I want to say I got fifty eight hundred for it. Yeah, and I paid four hundred. That's a and damn I'm sure the good guy turned uh, around and profit. sold it for twelve grand, you know. Yeah. So, yeah, those are, those are very, very good uh, investments. And I tell people. Because I've worked in music stores, I, I tell people, I said, dude, you're just putting your money in the bank. That right. guitar you're buying there is going to be worth what you're paying for it right now. And 10 years from now, it could be worth double. Well, that's actually and better than And you go, oh, you're just a salesman. I go, no, I'm not BSing it, you. It's better than putting your money in the bank because you're making a tenth of 1% on your money today. And guitars are going up exponentially more than having, you know, a couple thousand dollars sitting in a in a savings account and you get to play it right and enjoy it and, yeah you know. they're a great investment so yeah, guitars absolutely. uh uh i don't want everybody in the world to know what you're carrying around but you seem to have everything in storage so uh they're not some guy could have, guess rent a tank and come to your house and try and break it in the vault but uh you must have a couple of good uh, les pauls and some good strats in there somewhere um yeah i those are pretty much the the lion's share of my collection. It's not the broadest collection in the world. I I, I had some Gretches. I sold them um, because I, they just, although they were beautiful to look at, it was just I found myself not being gravitated to play it. Mm -hmm. And then I had some Epiphones and I sold them for the same reason. And uh, I had a Coronet and a Wilshire and they were beautiful. I just didn't play them. Mm -hmm. And then I had some Rickenbackers and they were gorgeous. And, you know, I, I'm 
amazing, you know, double bound and great guitars. And I just, again, I didn't play them. I, I've, I've always been a Strat and Les Paul. Mm-hmm. So, um, again, it's the sort of go with what you know. I didn't know anything about these other guitars. I bought them because right. I thought they were cool looking and, you know, whatever. Didn't you have I some Valley have. Arts guitars, too, for a while? Uh, no, I, I, I didn't. I never got on that train because um, I met Grover Jackson when he had just taken over Charvel because he was the Charvel's, guy. Charvel's, yeah. Yeah, he was the guy who everybody, you know, if you were in a local band and, and, you know, you didn't have a lot of money, but you wanted a cool guitar, you drove out to San Dimas and you saw Grover and you would say, you know, I want that Swamp Ash body and I want that Maple Neck and I want these. And he would slap a guitar together for you. And, you know, they started to take off, especially when he put together the Eddie Van Halen black and yellow right. guitar. And it's, that sort of put him on the map. And then, you know, these these guitars that were, you know, basically just slapped together with parts that he had. And, you know, he would let you pick bodies out of a pile of seconds that had a little, you know, a flaw to it for 50 bucks and next for 50 bucks. And, and if you were a guy like me playing in a band, not without a lot of money, you could have a, a decent guitar. And then these things, of course, took off this, you know, the Sandy Micharvel strats. Mm-hmm. And I would buy piles of these bodies for 25, 35, $50 and tons of necks. And I just wanted to try different things. So I remember, you know, uh, and so I, ha- I, I literally had 20 bodies and 20 necks and all these different pickups. And, and I would try different things and take the neck off this and put it with this and take this pickup out. And um, so anyway, those those early, you know, what was it, 79, 80, 81, 82 Charvels are now, uh, you know, a fortune. Could- but it, 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 it was just dumb luck. Yeah, no, you know, no, you're in the right place, right time, but you had the interest and you had the uh, wherewithal to uh, enjoy it, you know? Yeah, and for whatever reason, Grover <laughs> took a shine to me and, you know, he would sell me stuff like, you know, here, kid, take this body. It's got a thing. I, I'm, you know, I can't sell it. Go. So here, have fun. Let's uh, let's uh, segue back to your uh, your involvement in the entertainment world. Now, I know you've worked on the stage with a lot of uh famous uh, people famous entertainers uh, yeah. anything come to mind uh, uh re- regarding a people that you would never forget after having worked with them that you were impressed with i mean they really oh yeah i mean good and bad well <laughs> i, I want to hear I, both at least a little uh, bit of li- little bit well, of both <laughs> the, the bad the bad might have to wait for my uh memoir after i'm so retired. you got a better lawyer <laughs> you know to have a better yeah, lawyer I, I don't want to. I don't want to get sued. And uh, although you know, um, there have been as many great stories with great people. There have been, you know, it's like uh, sometimes you don't want to meet your heroes. Oh um, boy! So yeah, the, yeah. I, um, I in whenever uh, Bill Clinton was inaugurated, um, I was asked to be one of the stage managers for his inauguration, and so. Um, he was on this bus tour where he, Bill and Hillary and the, and the Gores were traveling around in a bus and the bus ended up at the back of the Lincoln monument and they got out and they walked up and then they were presented to the world and there was a flyover and there were millions of people and they were all the way down the, you know, to the Washington monument on either side of the reflecting 
pond and pool or whatever that is. And um, it was this huge presentation and he walked down the steps and there was this great show for him. And then he got sworn in. And I remember um, I was the stage manager that was assigned to him. So I met them at the bottom of the stairs and we, we all walked up together with secret service and the camera guy, Ken Patterson and his utility guy. And then the color guard was all there. And then I re- showed him my rundown and where he was going to walk from and walk to and where they were going to go and when they were going to go. And um, here was the guy who was about to be, you know, sworn in. And it was basically me, secret service and the four of them. And so we walked up the stairs and came around the corner and we were sort of hidden behind a pillar. And I ran out to where he was going to stand to show him his mark. And I remember looking out and seeing, literally seeing a million people and listening <laughs> to the planes in the background about to do the flyover and looking out and thinking, holy shit, I don't, I don't know if it's ever going to get any better than this. <laughs> and I walked the back show and, must he, go on. and he saw his mark and it was, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome the next president of the United States. And, and, and out they went. And it was, um, it was, it was pretty crazy. It's an interesting story because for me, I saw Bill Clinton talk at the Thelonious Monk uh, fundraiser at the uh, Dolby Theater, you know, mm-hmm. where they where you have Herbie Hancock and you have all these great musicians that are trying to raise money for the school, you know, the Thelonious Monk Jazz School. And Bill Clinton was a speaking guest, you know, and he has this huge, uh, you know, appreciation of, uh, you know, music. Uh, so he's an interesting, an interesting character in American history. Because he has a, a, an appreciation for music, so well, you know, he did that famous thing on Arsenio Hall show where he got up and played, you know, saxophone. I, I ended up working with him many, many times after that. There was a show that was done in D.C. at Ford's Theater called "An Evening for the President," and we and we did eight of them, and so I, I got to know him a little bit. You know, he at least recognized me because he, you know, once a year he would see me, and I'd walk through the show with him and then, you know, tell everybody we're ready. And then you'd hear the music and, and I would cue him out the, the door and the show would start. Um, and, you know, say what you want about him. And I'm, you know, like all of them, they're not perfect, but um, he was really cool to me. And we talked a little bit about music and um, he was, he was exceptionally nice and very generous. And um I was a huge fan of his. Is he is he a perfect person? No, none of us are. Did he make some huge mistakes? Yes. Um, but you know, as as a human being, um, the many many times I worked with him, he was always nice to me. Yeah. And so, you know, say say what you will about him. And no, um, I liked I, I, I liked what he I, had I to say about music. You know, when he was uh, talking at the uh, fundraiser, he he g- was generally sincere about his love and passion for music and what it, what what it meant to our culture you know mm-hmm. i mean our culture and, and, has a lot to do with uh you know uh, entertainment and music and these sort of artistic people and personalities that america has culled you know it's like he has an appreciation for that which is a you know great thing yeah, really cer- cer- certainly more than in today's uh <laughs> climate I, there's a funny story i have at one of these uh shows that i did with him Um, there was always a comedian and there was a musical act and there was an opening. And then there's somebody that had read uh, since we were at Ford's theater, somebody read one of Lincoln's speeches and it was a, you know, it was an hour variety show. And one of the years that we did the show, Kenny Loggins was the musical guest. So Kenny brought, Kenny brought his band and in his band, 
uh, my friend from junior high school, Robbie Neville, who went on to become very successful and then, you know, sort of fell off the charts, was playing rhythm guitar in Kenny Loggins band. I hadn't seen him since the ninth grade. And, you know, 40 years later, there we are in Ford's Theater in Washington, D.C., you know, um, uh, on the same show. So it was a it, it was sort of cool to see him, you know, who else was in the band? And, do you remember? I don't. Was it remember. Steve Wood on keyboard? Uh, do you remember any of that? Uh, no, I probably could dig up my script. Some of those I, guys I, in I his band are from this area down here. I'm friends with them. So, Kenny yeah. Loggins band guys. Yeah, he was. Kenny was a nice guy. I remember, and I remember the band being really good. Um, yeah, surrounds himself with good musicians. Been, yeah, so so many shows later, and you, you know, I can't we could probably everything. do another. Uh, interview where we all we talk about are the people that you rub shoulders with uh you know anything that maybe we didn't cover uh today that uh you could think of that might be an important uh you know a point of interest uh you've been, you've been actually fantastic thanks so much for for all oh, you've my shared. pleasure really really great um, stuff i i i think um well, I mean, I have a. We didn't talk about my pedal collection, which is in 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 the hundreds. But I don't know if that's interesting to you know. Well, it's your, all interesting, actually. You, you bought a bunch of Eric Johnson's uh, equipment. That's right. Yeah. yeah. So I have a I have a great Eric Johnson story. Um, so I'm a huge Eric Johnson fan. How could you not be if you're into electric guitars, strats, and uh, uh, Marshall amplifiers? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I I. I not only, you know, is is he a, a great songwriter, a great singer, a great guitar player, um, you He's know, gracious. his records sound wonderful. Um, I, I have about, let's say about five years ago, I got a call from a guy in a music store and he said, hey, I got your number through somebody and they said that you're the guy to call about Marshall's that you know everything under the sun about these amplifiers and what year and when they were made and where they were made and what circuit was, what, you know, and I said, well, that's, that's very kind. I, I, I don't know if, you know, I'm the world's leading expert on Marshalls, but certainly, you know, I, I know a little bit. And so he said, well, I've got this customer that's got this strange amplifier and he can't ID it. And he's not able to figure out what year it is. He was told it was a, 1964 65 it was a combo amp it was an 18 watt but it was white and i went eh, uh it doesn't sound right to me and he said well can i send it to you and fedex it to you would you have a look at it because you know he paid a lot of money for it and you know he wants to know if it's real and because there were at the time um a lot of the really early Marshall combos, the Bluesbreaker combos were being, um, they were taking other parts from later, companies were taking other parts from later things and sort of uh, trying to turn later amplifiers into, into the, you know, the Bluesbreaker, the, the Beano amp. Anyway, um, so the next day this package arrived from FedEx and I opened it up and there was this 18 watt white Marshall combo that was allegedly a 64 and it did not have any of the 1964 appointments. So I, my first instinct was something's not right. And so um, I 
took off every screw and took the back off and took the you know chassis out of the box and and started to you know got my magnifying glass out and started to look at the date stamping on some of the capacitors and some of the parts and they date stamped in 1967 which made a lot more sense because they weren't making amplifiers in the white levant tolex covering in 64 and just it looked like a 67 and turns out it was and the transformer was right and everything was right for it to be a 67 so i called the guy back and i said hey good news and bad news um the bad news is it's not a 64 the good news is it is a marshall it is real it is a 67 I my gut says it was made for a NAM show or some sort of show where they might have made a one off because I've never seen another one of these, but it's the real deal. And, you know, I pulled I pulled a staple out because I looked, you know, I could tell and, you know, put it back carefully and looked at, you know, the the piping and it, and it was all it all was earmarked 67. So the guy said, oh, great. And then he said, hey, listen, my client wants to call you and thank you. And, you know, he really appreciates it. And it solved a lot of, you know, mysteries. And so I said, yeah, absolutely. So a couple of minutes later, my phone rings. I answer the phone and uh, this guy says, uh, hey, Peter, this is Eric Johnson. And I about about fell over. And he said, thanks so much for IDing my amp. We spent an hour and a half on the phone and talked about, you know, all things Marshalls. And he told me about you know, these crazy heads that he had. And then he said, Hey, listen, if uh, I don't know if you'd be interested, but I have a 1967 hundred watt black flag head that I'd like to sell. And the black flag was a, a, a model that they made in late 67 for about a month. And it's got one of the rarest, you know, Marsha, they just, they made them in November 67 and, and they made very few of them. And of course he had one and wants to sell it. And he said, I'm coming out, to, I'm playing in LA at the Canyon club. I'll bring it with me and you take it home and see if it's something you're interested in. And, you know, so I go and to the Canyon club and I, I meet him and he, you know, he gives me the amp and I take it home and it's perfect. I mean, it's the coolest <laughs> sounding head. And, um, he said, yeah, um, you know, just so send me a check. And it was, you know, significantly less than it should have been. And I said, well, I, I think this is kind of low, you know? Um, and he said, no, 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 that's what I paid for it. And, you know, um, oh, God. <laughs> and it was unbelievable. And so I sent yeah. him a check and then it just, you know, every couple months I would get a call from him and say, Hey, I just found this head on the road. I'm going to get rid of another one. Are you interested in the 1968 50 watt Plexi, you know, all original with, you know, and the original cover it's like yeah um he said well do you have one i said it doesn't matter this one's yours what what did you use it on he said oh i played this one was you know i did a track on with uh, with steve miller on this and i used this one on up music comments on whatever and it was like and one thing led to another and um i probably bought 20 pieces from him tons of cabinet speakers effects and he goes through a lot of gear and it, it, and it's, he doesn't sell it because he has to sell it. He just, you know, he goes on the road and people bring things to him or he goes to stores or pawn shops. And I guess he's got a, a large collection of stuff and, you know, he, uh, so, gear goes through his hands a lot and mm -hmm. he sort of found an outlet for without having to, you know, advertise, um, this stuff. It's amazing. Um, and, and we became, I don't want to say we're good friends, but you know, I can 
call him and text him and say, Hey, what do you think of this? And, you know, and, and so, and most importantly, he's an incredible human being. Uh, I, I can't say enough, you know, the guy doesn't have a bad bone in his body and he's generous and kind and knowledgeable. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm very lucky to, you know, call him a friend. Yeah. I know about him through friends. Uh, we belong to the same meditation, uh, organization and in austin uh there's a lot of people who practice meditation that know him they're they're all part of the same like clan out there so i i know that he's a real soft-spoken uh, genuinely uh, wonderful person through them uh, i've yeah, never met him myself i've i saw him in a parking lot once uh everybody was in lines to get into these porta potties right and i was about 50 yards away from him and i shouted out love your music he looked mm -hmm. up. He looked up first, <laughs> and then he saw, saw me in my line, and he said thank you with his mouth without saying anything. You know, it was kind of that's as close as Tarek Johnson that I've got. But uh, yeah, well, I know I know how wonderful he is through friends of his. So it's great. You're, lu this, you're lucky. Um, yeah. This uh, Eric Clapton Crossroads Festival, the first one uh, I was a stage manager on. I want to say it was 2004, and he was on the bill. Um, but I never got to, I didn't get a chance to talk to him. I mean, they, you know, his gear was loaded in and I was working with his techs and, you know, getting the stage ready and all, you know, all of a sudden it was, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Eric Johnson and out he came. Um, but I, I, so there, I have a lot of photographs that were taken by this photographer that, you know, both he and I are in, I'm in the wings and he's performing. And so, you know, years later I said, well, you know, we actually did, we sort of met, uh, back in, you know, I sent him a bunch of these pictures where we're, we're both in the frame, but never really got to me. Cool. Uh, yeah. So that's he's a great good, stuff. He's a good dude. Peter, I think, uh, I think you've spilled your guts today. It's been fantastic. I really appreciate it, you being on our show. Well, if you find after you edit this thing down and you know, that there's anything that you want to go over more stuff about guitars. If you want to make this more guitar oriented and less about me or, you know, talk about specific Les Pauls or specific, you know, we didn't even get into hollow bodies. You know, I have, I have Johnny Smith's and some 335 and 175s and yeah. Ton, yeah You're and a collector basically. Yeah. yeah. And all, you know, Gibson flat tops. I mean, there's tons of stuff we can talk about if you want to, you know, go more into the guitar thing. We could it's, do, it's a, a, we could do, uh, yeah, part two uh, show sometime in the future. How's that sound? Awesome. awesome. Yeah, God, you've been uh, magnificent. Oh, what, one thing I did want to ask you, and I, I made a point to say this. You know, when I was thinking about this last night, and of course I forgot. And you, you, you can edit this out if you want. But do your um, podcast uh, listeners um, know about your? past i mean i'm sure they know about your education and your jazz life but like do they know what past they, do they know about johnny malibu <laughs> uh yeah i think a lot of people on facebook uh you know not really i don't ever i don't ever walk around uh trying to make it a point but i, I have put photographs here and there that uh, show that i was playing in that band and i was a founding I, member and all that i just stuff. think it's so it, it it's so funny that the, uh, this major you know, bebop line jazz guitar player with this massive musical education is the uh, lead guitar player in a surf punk band in the late 70s. Well, we lived in the same neighborhoods, you know, we were beach bums, uh, you know, and uh, they had two songs that were a single that, you know, showing some 
success, and Epic Records was very interested, and they needed an album, and they just came to me and said, "Could you help us complete, you know, this record? Because you know it's, we we don't know how to put a whole album together." So I wrote a lot of the material. I played lead guitar and all this stuff, and I ended up, you know, singing if you want to call that singing. Uh, and I completed the Surf Punk's first album, which was a very big selling record, by the way. And the main thing about it was it was so influential because a lot of bands copied us later on. That sound that we had, you know, like surf punk rock music. We were the first uh, group to do that. And uh, it became a very popular kind of medium later on. I, yeah. I still have that record, by the way, which you signed for me. The back pink in the and day. black one? Yeah. yeah there were, there were 5,000 of those made. With yeah. somebody ripped my stick yeah. and uh, a number of other great hits. Yeah, uh, I think I, I I actually maybe saw you guys at Starwood or Santa Monica Civic. I can't remember. I remember seeing it. A, a, maybe it was a music video you did. I don't know. I I came and saw something. I I can tell you that I ran from the band more than I ran from the fame. I just didn't want to be around those guys because they were very, very crazy all the time, right? You couldn't right. really have a regular conversation with them. What was it? It was Daryl Dragon's brother? Dennis Dragon, yeah. Dennis, and he, right. he, he and I, we, we were. he passed away recently, but uh, he and I had been good friends all throughout whatever happened because we were just beach bums, you know? But I right. will say this. When I was touring with uh, the Cashed Out band playing Johnny Cash music, the the leader of, of that group was a surf punk uh, fan when he was a kid, right? So he would make these announcements at these gigs. And on the guitar, we have the original Johnny Malibu from the surf punks, right? And th this is like Johnny Cash, <laughs> you know, people in the Midwest right. and in Alaska and the North Pacific North. People would come up out of the crowd and go, did you really play in the surf punks? And I thought to myself, are these guys serious? Because uh, right. where have I been? You know, well, I disappeared <laughs> to Australia, you know, while right. the surf punks were cashing in on uh, their popularity because I didn't stay with the band. But uh, yeah, people really uh, like that uh, music. You know, it's interesting. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Hey, this has been uh, great. And thanks, buddy. Thanks um, for bringing that up. But uh, I didn't well, start the I, show I, I, but for my own. You know, I, I, I thought about it and then I thought, well, I wonder if his base knows of his history. And then I thought, well, you could always edit this out. I think people in Australia know me as a blues guitarist more than they know me as right. Johnny Malibu. The Because uh, that's where I did a lot of my touring uh, around Australia. So, yeah, I remember you sending me CDs. Yeah. Um, I did a anyway, lot listen, ago. I'll let you run. Thank you for your time. That was fun. And uh, if you need anything else from me, let me know. You're going to get... Uh, to give more for for us uh, sometime in the future we'll do a part two how's that sound happy to do it great having you thanks so much uh, all right brother talk to you later yeah see ya okay bye oh he just had to bring up johnny malibu when are people ever going to leave me alone about that anyway this is what you get for mentioning that
I serve alone. Things behind me, no one stands in my way. Ways are feeling perfectly to greet this dawning day. I, I serve alone. Let's hit it! a secret this Johnny Malibu. You've been listening to a Believe podcast. I'm your host John Hoisenstam and this is the Guitar Life. Hope you enjoyed the show. Thanks. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.